So again, before we get into the text, I want to make a comment, or a few comments, I guess, about reading and applying gospel narratives like Luke, uh, as we read through these, these narrative uh, uh, texts in the Bible, and by narrative, I mean this, these are, these are historical accounts written in story form, right? We see lots of those throughout the scripture, but that's certainly what the gospels are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So when we, when we uh, uh, approach reading them, one thing I, I think we can all admit that they're, they're pretty easy to read, they're stories, right? They're, they're easy to read through. But I wonder if you, like me, can feel like it's harder to find ways to, to, to seek application in them. Do you ever feel that way as you read the Gospels? Uh, I liken the flow of Luke's Gospel, and really all of them, but we've been in Luke, so I'll, I'll use Luke's here as our primary example. I liken the flow of it to sort of like a ball that's bouncing across a ping pong table. So if you throw a ball, maybe if you play pong, right? Dunk, 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 dunk. You know that that ball is moving in a general forward trajectory. It's moving in a general direction, right? But it's still bouncing all over the place as it moves in that general direction. So when I read through Luke, and as you're reading through it, or certainly following along on Sunday mornings, you might notice that it's like, hey, there's like this scene here, and then there's this scene there. And then there's this parable over here, and then there's this miracle that happens over here, and it's just sort of like bong, 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 and you know it's going in a direction, but you're kind of wondering, like, how does it all work together? So if you're reading your own Bibles and you're going through the Gospels, I I just wonder if you struggle to, to, to figure out applications, how do I approach the text? Um... As Andy and David and I have been preaching through, we're asking similar questions. How do we approach the text? Do we, do we treat each scene separately and just sort of camp out in them one at a time, mining, mining that one section for its gold nuggets? Or should we take a bigger picture, kind of a higher altitude approach, and look for broader themes and points of connection between those various scenes. What I want to say to you is that neither approach is better than the other. When you approach gospel narratives, you just have to make a methodological choice. So if we were to choose the focusing in on one thing at a time strategy here, staying within the individual scenes as our sermon text, it would probably, as you might guess, take us a couple years to get through Luke. There's a lot of those various scenes. And that would be fine to do. But I think you've obviously guessed by now, if you've been around here, that we've chosen the other route. We've taken more of the higher altitude, faster paced approach. Recognizing that as we do that, it's inevitable that we will sort of miss certain opportunities to focus on those individual scenes. We may, we may gloss over something that, that seems like it might be kind of an important thing to drill down on, but the trade-off is that we will be able to see the broader, bigger themes and the connections more clearly, and those are really important too. So you say, well, yeah, okay, why are you telling us this, Bill? I'm telling this to you in part because I, I think it will help you, and I hope it will help you, as you think about the way you read your Bibles on your own. 
when you read on your own, if you know, for example, that I'm choosing to preach through Luke in this bigger picture way, it might benefit you to read through Luke during the week and read through it in a different fashion and with a different method, maybe reading a little bit more slowly, reading more pinpointedly as you work through it, and you might pick up some new things that really enrich you and, and do that just simply by employing a more focused method of study. Sometimes when we read scripture, we need to read it through a microscope and look at those details, right? And there are other times when we read scripture that we should look at it through a, a telescope and get those big wide swaths and those big glances, a grand view, both perspectives are needed. So I'm telling you that just to help you think about the way you read your own Bibles. I'm also taking the time to tell you these things in order to better prepare you to listen to my sermons, right? With a, a, maybe a clear sense of why it is that we're doing what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. These are bigger view approaches to the text and bigger view sermons require reading through larger sections of scripture at a time. And I'm about to do that. So as I do that, now you'll know why, right? As you're sitting there going, how much further is he going to read? I'm hoping that you'll understand, okay, that, now we know what he's doing. And, and not only appreciate those longer readings, but also as we read those long things and you know the approach we're taking, listen for, look for those connections. Look for the themes. Look for things that kind of pop up in multiple spots throughout the text as we read it, Okay. We're going to start in verse 23. This is where David left off last week as he preached to us the first half of chapter 9. So I'm going to read verses 23 through 27 as an overlap of what he taught. And then if starting in verse 28 will be our text for today, moving through the rest of the chapter. Verse 23. And he, being Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days later after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were, take, were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they came fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, 
This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him on the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I've titled today's message, His Face Was Set Towards Jerusalem. And you heard that phrase twice in the text. I pulled that directly from verse 53. In that one sentence, we see both the trajectory of Luke's big gospel idea, I think, for this whole section of text, and we also see in that sentence, his face was set towards Jerusalem. 
we see the key contrast in this passage that sets up our application. Jesus is turning right now. He's been working in the region of Galilee, all these chapters that we've been reading through uh, over the last several weeks, up to chapter 9 here. And his turn now, his focus now towards Jerusalem from Galilee is a pivotal transition point in his mission. We're supposed to grasp that here. Everything is about to kind of turn as we go through the rest of the book. And both he and his disciples understand that this is a pivotal moment, a pivotal turn, because they understand that Jerusalem is the final destination. They know that's where they need to go, and that's where they will be heading. But for Jesus, the destination in Jerusalem meant one very specific thing. For him, it meant the cross. The cross. He was purposefully going to Jerusalem to be arrested, tortured, and killed. For the disciples, going to Jerusalem meant something else. Not a cross, but to them it meant the throne. They expected Jesus as the Messiah of God to get to Jerusalem and to assume King David's royal throne. They assumed that he would overthrow Rome and its oppressive occupation once and for all and reestablish the kingdom of Israel again as a sovereign, mighty nation. So they all knew they were heading to Jerusalem. They just had very different expectations about what was going to happen there, why they were headed there. And that's the contrast that we have to pick up. And understanding that contrast and understanding the implications of both of those sets of perspectives and expectations is the key here for our application of understanding what is true discipleship. In other words, again, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? So I have three aims for the rest of this sermon. Here they are. First one is this, to briefly point out in the text the thread of Jesus' expectations as he sets his face towards Jerusalem. I want to show you. I just told you what they are. I'm going to show you where I get it from. Secondly, and again very briefly, point out the contrasting thread of the disciples' expectations about what it means to be going to Jerusalem. And then thirdly, and we'll spend the most of our time here, to highlight the application that Jesus and Luke are pointing us to here Again, in order to help us follow him truly as disciples, okay? So the first thing, the first aim, Jesus' expectations in going to Jerusalem. I want to show you just three pieces here, three clues that were given. Now, obviously, we started off with reading the end of of last week's text. I've got to turn my page back to get to it. In verse 23, where Jesus is talking about taking up your cross daily and following him. And of course, at this point, the disciples have no idea what that's really all about. Right? The cross, again, is not in view yet in terms of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' future. But we've got, this, we've got this already kind of in the water. But as we move into the text here today, what happens immediately after that is they go up on the mountaintop and there's this, this transfiguration of Jesus 
What I want you to see in verse 30 is something that Luke's gospel reveals here that the other gospels don't when they talk about this transfiguration moment. In the other gospels, we see Jesus up there shining brightly and, and you know, glowing as he is, and we see Moses and Elijah there, and we know that they're talking together. But it's in Luke's gospel that we get insight into what it is that they were actually talking about. Verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now that word that, that, that Luke originally writes here in Greek is actually translated his exodus. They were speaking of his exodus, of his departure, which is an interesting thing to be discussing with a guy like Moses, right? Moses led the people out of Egypt through the exodus into the promised land. And every time we see Exodus language, and we see Exodus language quite a bit throughout the Old Testament, you know that there's a big, uh, there's a big movement of God in salvation and saving his people. That's what Exoduses are about. So we see here that they're talking specifically in this moment about his exodus, about deliverance language, his departure, the Turning towards Jerusalem and what Jesus knows he's heading to there is very much the center of conversation on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the first clue that we see here. The second clue is, is, is quite obvious. It's this Jesus foretelling his death, verses 43 and 44. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Now, if somebody says that to you, what do you understand about their intent? They're saying, this is important, right? Hear this. Let this sink into your ears. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a whole sermon focused on that idea of, of what it means to really hear what Jesus is saying. Let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's telling them exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And then thirdly, we see the trajectory again that he's on in verse uh, 53. Actually, we can see it in verse 51 as well. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The days drew near for him to be taken up. The end is near, right? And he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So Jesus' expectation, again, I said this already, I'm just showing you where I get it in the text. He clearly sees that what waits for him in Jerusalem is a cross. Let's talk briefly about the disciples' expectations in going to Jerusalem, their misguided expectations. The first thing we see here is that they didn't grasp Jesus' words. As he's saying to them, let these things sink into your hearing... It just doesn't. They're, 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 they're missing it so far. Verse 32. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. This is up again on the Mount of Transfiguration. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory, the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Jesus said, excuse me, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and I just love this comment here, not knowing what he said. So we're getting this, this kind of early clue, like, again, these guys are just not 
They're not aware of what's really happening yet. Not knowing what he said. <laughs> I, 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 I was thinking about just how to, how to relate to that. What, was, what, was, what does that mean that he didn't know what he said? I think it was sort of like when, when you see something amazing, wonderful, magnificent. I mean, they just saw Jesus transformed right in front of their eyes. They see the glory radiating from him. You know, what, what do you do? I, I was reminded of, of my wedding day when, when the first time I saw Christine, you know, in her wedding dress. We had that little private look before the wedding. And I just remember, like, I'm sure words came out of my mouth. I just have no idea what they were, right? What was swimming in my brain was something more like just, right? Like, wow. I'm sure there were words there. I have no idea what I was saying. That's kind of what I see Peter being like, right? He's saying things, but he has no clue what he's saying yet. No clue what he's saying. But more specifically, look at verse 35. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And again, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, but they kept silent. They told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. They just, they didn't understand it. They weren't grasping it yet. I would think if they knew what they were seeing, they would have told everybody. But they're not there yet. And in verse 45, it's the most explicit comment about that. They did not understand this saying, the saying being the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They didn't understand it. It was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So they're not understanding what it is that Jesus is heading to. But it's not that they're just not getting it and therefore sort of remaining neutral about where they're headed. Their not understanding leads to a misunderstanding about what Jesus is about to do and where they're headed. Because what we see them do from this point on is they begin to sort of plan their victory march into Jerusalem. They're seeing Jesus again heading to Jerusalem, and they're thinking, not cross, they're thinking throne. They're thinking king. They're thinking, this is it, man. This is where Israel gets, we get our, we, 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 we get our, our, our oomph back, right? We get our status back. And what we see from them then is, I think, three things. We see pride, we see partisanship, and we see punitiveness. That's my little attempt at alliteration this morning. But let me show you again. Verse 46, right? We, immediately we see pride. An argument arises amongst them as to which one of them was the greatest. Jesus is going to the throne. We're his disciples. Hey, man, which one of us gets to be vice president, right? Which one of us gets to sit like on the close seats to the king? We're, we're going to be his cabinet members, guys, right? We're going to have power, we get to be in the royal court. You're seeing that kind of attitude arising up in them. Which one of us is the greatest? And of course, Jesus tempers that. No, no, no. Like the least among you. The least among you. But that's not where they're at. Secondly, partisanship. Verse 49, John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because it does not follow with us. What's he saying there? He's saying, hey, you're, you're the king, 
We're on your team. We're wearing the Jesus jersey. This guy hasn't been to practice yet. This guy's not on our team. So we're going to shut him up, right? There's pride wrapped up in their partisanship. And then it gets even to the point of punitiveness. Verse 54, they get to the Samaritan village. The Samaritan village has rejected Jesus. It says specifically because he set his sights towards Jerusalem. Verse 54, when his disciples James and John, the sons of thunder, their nickname, they saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Right? You're the king. They rejected you. Let's wipe them out. Come on, Jesus. Let's do that king stuff. Let's do that Israel stuff. That's where their, their minds are at. So it's a completely different trajectory than where Jesus is headed. Their understanding of his final journey to Jerusalem was distorted and inaccurate. They expected him to move in as a king who was going to take control of everything. And by the way, they weren't entirely wrong about that. He is the king, right? He is the king. But his eventual victory in Jerusalem over the power of sin and Satan and death, that was not fully in view for them yet. They had no idea that this victory would be won through his suffering and through his death. And they had no idea that this victory wouldn't be fully realized immediately. I mean, to this point, we're at 2,000 years that this victory is still being implemented, right? They had no idea about that. And so to understand that, again, this is important their misunderstanding of Jesus' setting his face towards Jerusalem resulted in a misunderstanding of discipleship. A misunderstanding of what it means to follow him. So we can move to our application. What about us? What about the people of 21st century America? Even within the church, how do we understand Jesus' ministry objectives? And what are our expectations of what it means to follow him there? How many of us really hear and comprehend what Jesus says here about the cost of following him? Look at verse 57 again. We'll read that last section. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Right? I'll be your disciple. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is not a move towards greatness. This is not a move towards comfort. This is a move towards joining me in forsaking all for the mission. Another, he said, follow me. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Leave the things of this world and the concerns of this world for the citizens of this world. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. 
And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is exodus. You don't look back. You move forward to the place of salvation. So what about us? Are you familiar with the term prosperity gospel? I think most of you probably are. And most of you probably realize that this version of the gospel is a false gospel. It's a false gospel. It's also pervasive. Throughout the United States and many other parts of the world that have been influenced by Western evangelical theology. And I put evangelical in air quotes there on purpose, right? But this, the influence is pervasive. This prosperity gospel, often called a health and wealth gospel, is associated with the idea that material success is a sign of God's favor. If you're blessed in the things of this world, then you must be blessed by God. These, these key things can be received also in accordance with the measure of a person's faith. And often, even though they wouldn't admit it necessarily, often as a response to a person's willingness to give their money to the church or to the person preaching that prosperity gospel. But in this scheme, a Christian who follows Jesus is someone who will learn to unlock the blessings of God and be able to live their, this phrase is used a lot, their best life now. And the cross of Christ is seen as a means by which God put our sin, sickness, disease, sorrow, grief, and poverty on Jesus. And that's a direct quote from one of the key prosperity gospel preachers, Kenneth Copeland. Prosperity gospel preachers will often cite passages like 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, which read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And they'll use that as a proof text for their claim that God is most glorified in us when we're most fat and happy. Now, does that sound anything like what we just read Jesus saying in verses 57 to 62? No, right? No, of course not. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head is a far cry from Jesus wants you to fulfill all of your material dreams. It's a far cry. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. And I hope you recognize it when you see it so that you can steer clear of its dangerous influence. Now, I say that knowing that that particular heresy has not really been a huge concern of mine for you here at Edgewater. I don't see people diving into the prosperity gospel waters, at least as I just described them so much here. But what is potentially of greater concern are the ways in which we might believe more subtle forms of it. More subtle forms of it. Now again, I thank God that I haven't seen this pop up yet in our church, but I'm hearing a lot more from pastors that I know across the country about a growing influence that they're dealing with 
significantly in their churches, and it's this, it's this, it's this influence called Christian theonomy. Christian theonomy. And to me, these theonomists tend to sound a lot like James and John here in Luke chapter 9. They want to see Jesus widely regarded as king over everything in such a way as to expect then that government and culture and everything around us should be immediately subject to his righteous laws. Now on the surface, that's appealing. Because of course, we believe Jesus is king over everything. 1 Peter 3 tells us that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And amen for that. But unlike the theonomists, who like the sons of thunder here, James and John, take this as a cue then to wage a culture war. To wage a culture war against godless secularism that's all around us. Saying something like, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? These secular influences, right? Or they take it as a reason to aspire to positions of political power. Which one of us is the greatest? Or as a license to champion partisanship. We tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. It's not on our team. Unlike that, we've got to remember that Peter follows his exaltation of Jesus as king in 1 Peter with this call, immediately following that exaltation. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And that's the expectation that Jesus has for his disciples here in Luke 9 as well. Remember, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Listen, Jesus didn't come to gain the whole world. He didn't come to gain the whole world. That was a temptation that Satan offered to him in the wilderness. We read that in chapter 4, and Jesus overcame that temptation by quoting the word and the will of his father when he said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Following Jesus, then, as a true disciple means turning away from any desire of earthly gain, no matter how appealing it might be, in order to set our faces along with his towards Jerusalem, where we will find a bloody cross, not a golden throne. Any attempt to view Jesus as a means to some temporal earthly end 
is a sad substitute for the power of the gospel that he came to proclaim. Despite what any flashy prosperity preacher on TV might tell you or whatever some influential pastor or church in Idaho might try to get you to believe. Why? This is key. Because your biggest problem isn't found in all the stuff that you don't have. And your biggest problem is not found in the encroachment of secularism from the world around you. Your biggest problem is inside of you. Your biggest problem is the sin in your own heart. The sin that separates you from eternal fellowship with a holy God and condemns you to the just and righteous punishment of his wrath. That's your biggest problem, by far. But Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem to deal with it. So he could bear that wrath for you. In other words, instead of you on the cross. He set his face toward Jerusalem so that he could absorb the punishment for your sin and my sin so that we could be forgiven. Forgiven. We could have a right relationship with the Father through his righteousness, which is imputed to us through faith in his finished work there. And our call then is to Follow him by taking up our cross, dying to self, and placing our hope fully in what he has accomplished for us on our behalf. That's the real gospel. And this gospel really is good news. Because what we gain in dying to self is we gain Christ himself. We gain Christ. We gain life, eternal life, because we gain the author of life. We gain a union with him that is not only unshakable, but is exceedingly joy-giving and all-satisfying forever, because to be found in him is to be plugged into the source of the highest pleasures forevermore. The Apostle Paul considered the loss of all earthly things as incomparable to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And the Apostle Paul could see that because he saw that the freedom of forgiveness, which is the absence of condemnation, the freedom of forgiveness is the greatest freedom and gift we could ever know. And it frees us not only to forsake the empty promises of this world, but to inherit the full riches of heaven when we get there. When we get there. Yet without any danger of those riches ever stealing our affections away from Christ because his worth and his beauty will ever be in front of us and will always surpass them all. So listen, are the things of earth inherently evil? Of course not. That silly idea was the error of Gnosticism. That's, that's not the point. Don't mishear the point. 
if we follow Jesus because we see him as a means to an end, we see him as a means to an end of some kind of temporal comfort or temporal power or temporal possessions, we've completely missed the point. The point is that Jesus and the salvation that he offers is the treasure hidden in a field. Jesus and the salvation that he offers is the pearl of great value worth selling off everything else for just to obtain it. To forsake all to follow him for those who perceive rightly what it means to follow him to forsake all to follow him is to forsake nothing <laughs> to forsake nothing david reminded us last week the words of jim elliot this captures the heart of true discipleship he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose In Christ alone, my hope is found. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's what it really means to follow Jesus. And he is worth the cost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit. As you lead us, Lord, to read your word and guide us, Lord, to truth, guide us, pointing us to Jesus. Lord, you're, you're good and gracious to us in that way. And Lord, I do pray that that, that main big idea, Lord, would seek, sink into our hearts deeply, Lord. Forgive us for easily being like the disciples were at this moment. Again, seeing Jesus maybe as some kind of an add-on, some kind of a, a boost to our own uh, sinful thoughts and desires. Lord, forgive us for, for using even, even your name as a platform for making much of our own names. Lord, just impress upon us the wonderful, beautiful mystery of the cross. Impress upon us, Lord, in such a way that it drives us to humility and drives us to incredible thanksgiving and worship to know that this was Jesus' aim, to suffer and die for us, to redeem us from the entrapments of our own sinful hearts to forgive us and make us new. 
And Lord, help us to follow him there. Help us to lay down our own crowns and magnify the Lord. Help us to exalt his name. Help us to remember, Lord, that to follow Jesus is to identify in that suffering, fixing our eyes not on the things of this world, but on the, the world to come. Looking at this world as a place that is in need of redemption and the hope of Christ-filled people who can point to that old rugged cross, pointing people away from the empty promises of golden thrones that will not last. Protect us, Lord, from false ideas of the gospel. Keep us rooted, Lord, in a simple faith and dependence on the one who bore our sins and rose again. And we thank you, Lord, again, for that great work. Thank you for not being content to deal with our temporal needs, Lord. Thank you that you went right to the heart of our eternal need, our most significant need to be restored in fellowship to you. We praise you and we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.